0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Hashrate Happy Hour podcast, where this week I had the pleasure of sitting down with Jamie McCavity, the CEO and founder of Cormant. This conversation is an absolute treasure trove of information when it comes to wind power and Bitcoin mining. We go deep into the history of wind farms and renewable energy in ERCOT, the differences between being co-located versus behind the meter at a wind farm, and Jamie shares the exciting new investment vehicle that Cormant is offering as it is expanding its operations. This is truly one of those episodes where you're going to want to have a notebook handy to take notes, especially if you've ever wanted to know more about how Bitcoin mining is done at a wind farm. This show is managed by Foreman. Get it? See what I did there? Foreman helps you manage your entire Bitcoin mining facility all from one simple dashboard. That's demand response and power controls to miner and facility mapping and business intelligence all on one clean dashboard. Guys, this software is absolutely incredible, and it's what I personally use to manage the small miner fleet that I have online, and I think that's what I love about this the most is that it even lets the small miners, the plebs, have the ability to manage their computers like the pros. It's always also really impressive when I walk into these large mining facilities for my day job, and I look around in their control room and I see a 70-inch plus flat screen TV With their entire mining operation completely mapped out in Foreman, exactly how you would see it out on the floor. This is a truly invaluable tool for miner management, as well as being able to manage and automate your curtailment strategy. So please go check them out online today at foreman.mn, that's F-O-R-E-M-A-N dot M-N. And no, that's not because they're huge fans and supporters of the state of Minnesota. That's just their website domain. It's Foreman.me. Today's podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council, a Bitcoin-first nonprofit industry organization working to make Texas the jurisdiction of choice for Bitcoin mining and blockchain innovation. They will be hosting North America's premier policy conference for Bitcoin and the digital asset ecosystem. On November 15th through 17th in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information, please visit their website at texasblockchaincouncil.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Like I said in the introduction, I'm here with Jamie McAvity at Cormant. Jamie, welcome to the show. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I am. I'm excited to to get into this conversation, um, you guys have a, a fairly unique position in Texas and with your your energy generation, which we're going to get into all that. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I'm I'm really excited to dive into that and some of the unique perspective that that you and Cormint have on on Bitcoin mining. Where I like to always start, Jamie, is I I really do like to hear. About your background, my guest background, I, I think it's always kind of a nice lens to put on the conversation to hear where you're coming from uh before Bitcoin mining, and then what was that catalyst that got you into the Bitcoin mining space because it's a pretty pretty niche space Ah, yes,
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh found out about bitcoin and and I didn't move into it. Uh, for four years, which was always a mistake. But um, I started my career on the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange, which was what became the Chicago Mercantile Exchange following an acquisition in 2007. But um, I was in, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Trading Places, I was in one of those commodity trading pits where
0: oh, okay. the,
1: uh, the way that order flow is broadcast and executed is a bunch of guys sitting around shouting at each other. And I worked for um, a brokerage shop at first, and then I started working directly for what are known as local traders. So the, the way the ring works is the outside row where there are guys on the phones passing order slips to the broker's. That's all customer business. So they're, you know, on the phone with uh, trading shops all over the world or mm. commodity market participants uh, taking orders, giving them to the brokers. And then the guys who were sort of on the inside of the ring down a few steps are the locals and they are proprietary traders who are making markets and um, you know, taking positions from all of those other market participants. And so uh, I started there. I was in the crude oil pit. But I worked for some guys in the gasoline pit, the natural gas pit, um, the options that trade on those markets as well. And uh that was where I started my career. I eventually did become a trader myself. And um by the time I became a trader, the markets were all shifting away from open outcry into the CME Globex platform, which was an electronic trading system. And so okay. Uh, The way that I carved out my business there, which I um, built and and ran for about 10 years, was the markets were shifting from open outcry to electronic trading, which meant the markets were open 23 hours and 15 minutes per day. They only closed from uh, 5.15 to 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern. And Oh, wow. There were there were lots of periods of illiquidity, you know, especially in the overnight session uh, during geopolitical events uh, like wars, uh, financial crisis, the eurozone banking crisis. Those were typically the times that were the the most lucrative uh, for my career, just because there's illiquidity, there's news happening all the time. So it was very much a a twenty four seven type of job, um, and there was less opportunity for that type of job a market maker when um, the markets transitioned away from open outcry to electronic trading because algorithmic market makers replaced human market makers. Mm-hmm. but I was able to have a pretty good business for those ten years um mainly because there was a lot of market volatility during that time but twenty three hour and fifteen minute per day market hours are not a recipe for. A healthy way of living. Uh just oh, I can I can
0: imagine
1: that. Yeah, I had a position on, uh, you know, huge, huge positions on that were mostly hedged where I was long certain months and short other months in the future, uh, you know, the futures curve going all the way out. And basically you're always looking to to for opportunities to take your position off. Typically the way it works with a market maker is you get paid A spread on the bid ask when you put a position on it's it's oftentimes the worst positions in the market because Mm. that's that's the one that everybody sort of wants to get rid of so they dump it off to you and then you just have to pay attention all day to try and take it off so um after running that business for about 10 years i uh i left it behind and i went and uh worked in a technology startup in washington state uh for that was uh, in 2013, and the same time I made the decision to stop trading was uh, right around the time that I, I uh, bought my first Bitcoins, and I did not make the decision to move into Bitcoin. I went and worked on, on a technology startup company with two of my, my best pals out in Washington State, but um, obviously looking back in time, I wish I'd taken every penny that I had and uh, bought Bitcoin and gone all yeah. in on Bitcoin, but I didn't. <laughs> it was still a valuable experience building a different type of company but in the 2017 bull market my one percent allocation to bitcoin um became 50 percent of my net worth and i started attending conferences and uh learning about all the shit coins and trying to understand sure you know why bitcoin was different you know the the typical rite of passage of all bitcoiners where you you know you get a little bitcoin you learn a little bit and then you realize all of the things that you don't know um dabbled in in lots of shit coinery and actually corman's first days as a company were as a gpu mining uh company and our strategy was to uh, spec mine early proof of work currencies and uh we were all hardcore Bitcoiners going into it and needed to do GPU mining because our electricity costs weren't that good in the early days. Um, and uh, so, you know, we we were trying to mine other proof of work currencies and convert them back into Bitcoin. But ultimately, you know, we had our kind of return to, to, to Jesus moment and said, you know, we can't be spec mining shitcoins anymore. We don't believe in any of this. So.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. I I am curious what uh so when you started the GPU mining though. Um it sounds like maybe that was more of like an approach of just like some general arbitrage then, right? I mean, so you guys kind of saw okay, we we can we can speculatively mine for like Dogecoin, pick up a a shit ton of Dogecoin and then convert that into Bitcoin. Obviously probably wasn't Dogecoin at the time, but Right. Um, yes. Was that
1: kind of the premise then? Um. Yeah. the The premise was that there were some proof of work coin launches that were extremely valuable if you were running mining nodes at the launch. Um. One of the best examples was a company called, or I'm sorry, a, a crypto currency called Ravencoin oh yeah which uh, was designed to be sort of an asset tokenization layer and it had a mining algorithm called X16R which was it rotated between 16 different types of uh, proof of work and it was random so you had you had no way of knowing what the next one was going to be <laughs> um, if you spec mine that at launch you know you would have made like 5000% ROI oh my um, God cause the token wasn't trading and then it pumped when it did trade and Bruce Fenton was involved with the project and he was, you know, kind of shilling it. Um, and so we were watching that and at the time, I think our power costs were six or seven cents. So, um, ASIC mining was not modeling out to be extremely favorable. Mm. Um, this was throughout 2017 and we we got really excited about the launch of two other proof-of-work coins that were privacy focused using the Mimblewimble technology. And there was uh, they were, you know, somewhat supported by Bitcoiners. One was called Grin and another was called Beam. Uh they both ended up being uh, <laughs> extremely uneventful launches, but they were proof-of-work uh, mineable using GPUs. And because of our electricity costs and our technical capability of building GPU mines, operating GPU mines, and um, you know, setting up the the node infrastructure to be able to mine proof of work coins very, very close to their launch, we um, positioned ourselves to be, you know, amongst the largest GPU miners of those two coins when they launched. Um, Oh, wow. If you look back at the the charts of both grin and beam, they look like a lot of shitcoin charts where uh, they they start off with a very high, fully diluted market cap, and then they immediately drop uh, like a bag of bricks. Uh, mm-hmm. That was exactly what happened. But um, yeah, it was we got into mining through buying shot two fifty six asics, and then once we were confronted with the economic realities that our data center. Electricity costs were not economical enough to be competitive in that business. We pivoted to GPUs briefly and uh, went through two uh, proof of work shitcoin launches that didn't work out and ultimately sort of made the decision to return to focusing on Bitcoin only. Um, but sure, that you know, part of that decision was saying, Hey, we got it. we have to move to where the electricity cost is very, very cheap and scalable. You know, that's why we ended up where we are now in West Texas.
0: Oh yeah. Well, that's, I mean, what a, I can't even imagine how exciting all of that had to have been though, to be kind of at the leading edge of, you know, a couple of those launches. And I mean, for, for me, the, the whole GPU mining that has always seemed way more complicated than like plugging in ASICs and logging into the IP. (laughs) So I bet that was very exciting. Uh, Carter at Bitsby Trippin is a, is a big Raven coin miner as well. Um, And actually I don't think him and I chatted about that, but he, I I remember seeing a lot of his videos around Raven coin as well. So that one was a very familiar project to me. Um, so I'd love to, cause I think this is a really nice transition then into Cormint and kind of Cormant as we see today. So maybe what was the Genesis of, you know, so we already talked about the Genesis, which was the GPU side of things, but then you, you said you started to pay closer attention to your power cost and got more serious about that. Maybe start us in Cormant's journey from, from there
1: then, and kind of where you guys are at today. Uh yeah sure. Um uh, so, it in 2017 I'm I met my um business partners the co-founders of my company, and they at that time they knew more about Bitcoin than I did, and they helped me understand why the block size wars um, were inevitably won by the small block camp and why that was, was the important side to emerge victorious there. Uh, and, um, you know, I had experience building startups and with commodities, they had experience with running miners and, um, building data centers and, um, electrical engineering. So, uh, we, we got into Bitcoin mining, I think the same way that a lot of people do, which is, um, somewhat naively. So where we looked at ASIC prices, we looked at Bitcoin-denominated return potential of converting some of our Bitcoin holdings into ASICs, mm-hmm. and we wanted to support a new mining company called heilong Mining, which was started by a bunch of Bitcoin OGs in response to what was perceived to be by the market, kind of some not so great business practices by Bitmain. And so these OGs started Halong Mining and they did a run of SHA-256 ASICs and we committed to their pre-orders. We we funded our purchases in Bitcoin and then we began down the the journey like all um, first-time Bitcoin miners do. You bought machines, now you sort of got to scramble and figure out what to do you can either (laughs) enter into a hosting contract where your electricity costs are probably pretty high or you can try and do it yourself and then you're dealing with utilities you're dealing with um you know landlords you're dealing with local governments all kinds of ways that that can go wrong Mm -hmm. um and yeah so we had these miners we quickly realized our power cost was not going to be great to uh to recoup our bitcoin denominated investment also this was uh 2018 where uh the price of bitcoin dropped from twenty thousand dollars at the beginning of the year to three thousand dollars at the end of the year and simultaneously Mm -hmm. uh hash rate went from five million terahash to 60 million terahash in the same year so you know one of the worst (laughs) calendar year bear markets for bitcoin mining uh i think in the history um of of mining and it culminated in a big difficulty adjustment and hash rate drop uh, right around Thanksgiving of that year. But um, we were fortunate enough to be raising most of our seed capital in the third and fourth quarter of 2018. And with the existing data center contracts that we had negotiated and people who we met and we knew that we couldn't really do ASIC mining at scale since at our power cost, most of the ASICs on the market were already operating at breakeven. So we, um, we bought a whole bunch of GPUs and, uh, did the, the spec mining approach for, um, the first six to nine months of, of our existence as a corporation before deciding, you know, this is not, this is not for us. It's not, doesn't appear to be financially viable and it's not consistent with our view on where the industry is going. So, Mm -hmm. um, we, we made the the tough decision to just begin the search anew for scalable jurisdiction with, uh, with very low cost power. And, uh, we zeroed in on West Texas and it took us a full two years to actually get an interconnection and, and a good site that we could scale into a real business. Um, and, That that site was actually, I mean, it was a stroke of luck that we found it anyways. It was a a decommissioned wind farm. Then we Yeah, we we actually spoke to the owner of the wind farm in um while it was still an operating wind farm and they said we'd like you to come and co-locate and come behind the meter and build your your Bitcoin mine here. And we looked at the numbers and um concluded that you know it wasn't gonna meet our criteria. We still had a few other sites that we were looking at. Uh, Mm -hmm. and about four months later, they came and said, okay, well, we'll, we're going to decommission the turbines altogether. And why don't you just, uh, just take over the transmission infrastructure. And so that was what we ended up doing.
0: Jamie, can I just interrupt there and actually ask you what was driving that wind asset to, to decommission? Like what, what was pushing the, the ownership group of that to just
1: fully decommission it? Yeah, well, I'll send you some, um, some graphics that you can post in the show notes, but basically in, in the, um, there's two developments that occurred in the state of Texas in the, the mid 2000s. Um, one was the development of a system of transmission lines called the CREZ lines. CREZ stands for competitive renewable energy zones. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh. The other event that occurred was the first issuance or first, I guess, passing of the production tax credit for renewable energy, where the federal government actually gives you a tax credit to generate renewable energy. So the competitive renewable energy zone lines connected parts of remote West Texas to eastern Texas where most of the industrial activity and uh, residential areas are. And so when they built these transmission lines, they effectively opened up tons of very cheap land with great wind and great solar generating capabilities um, to, to development. And what happened after they built those transmission lines and people became aware of these tax credits was – the biggest uh, wind energy uh, development boom that's ever (laughs) that has ever occurred in the history of uh, of the species as far as i know where you went from zero megawatts of generation capacity or very very little to thirty five thousand megawatts so 35 gigawatts of wind energy that was built the uh, the crez lines and the renewable energy production tax credits Mm mm-hmm those two developments in, I think mean, the production tax credits were in the late 90s and the crez was in the, the mid 2000s early 2000s that sparked a a development boom of 35 gigawatts of wind power
0: yeah it was a, it was like a true build it and they will come moment from what i remember you know reading about crez
1: for sure yeah and and the the first projects that got up and running did great because there was, you know, the, the state was growing, demand for power was growing, the transmission was there. And, uh, I know I think before a lot of that wind got installed, the financial models for it looked fantastic, but it got to the point where the amount of, of wind that was built exceeded the transmission line capacity to, to actually export the power. So. um the cres lines have a little under twenty gigawatts of capacity for uh, for total power, and there's thirty five gigawatts of wind. Uh, so, <laughs> yep. what happens when that that transmission line capacity gets saturated is the you know the power cannot go out, so it just reduces the price. Uh, so you'll see power go to zero dollars very quickly, and then because you're still collecting. A tax credit for generating the renewable energy mm. those wind farms will actually generate up to negative 26 dollars per megawatt hour which is 2.6 cents a kilowatt hour um, oh, right okay. now and you know historically the tax credits have gone up in value so that the i guess call it the floor of the negative price that they will generate up to has moved and become more negative as time has gone on but. Um, the the tax credits themselves last for 10 years and then they expire so if you're a wind farm that's 11 years old your competition is generating is still profitable generating negative priced power and you're not and so that's what happened to the wind farm that we bought oh. they were they were in year 12 got it huh
0: and so they they lost the credits and then Did they just not have uh, an off taker for for that
1: energy then? No, I mean, prior to Bitcoin mining, there was really not a a suitable co-location off taker for uh, a lot of these renewable projects because the intermittency creates- Because they're in the middle of nowhere, right? You, you, You know, you're- (laughs) <laughs> there's not a lot of flexible loads who can just power down and and then that still is consistent with their their business plan being bi- being viable but bitcoin mine you know bitcoin mining can do that it's a very flexible load it's a economically perfect consumer of electricity so it's just about consuming when the output the bitcoin denominated output exceeds the electricity cost okay
0: yeah so it uh Interesting. And so, I mean, at that type of, uh, uh, you know, being co-located, you, you do also still have to have some grid-tied power too, correct? Because I, I know that the, like the capacity for the load factor on on wind is 40%, I think kind of is like the the average in even West
1: Texas, right? That's about right. Yeah. So you have the nameplate installation, um of the the wind farm. So the wind farm that that decommissioned, which is now where our Bitcoin mine is, their nameplate installation amount was 150 megawatts. Mm-hmm. And what it the the kind of output curve, what it looks like is five to ten percent of of the year. There's some amount of load on or some amount of generation occurring. But it's very minimal, and it, it it sort of ramps up where the if you wanted to get around the clock power from the wind farm, you'd be looking at maybe ten megawatts for a hundred and fifty megawatt wind farm. You'd have around the clock power 10, 10 megawatts. Uh, so I guess that's one fifteenth of uh, the nameplate capacity. Yeah. That'd be what you could get around the clock. And then as you sort of move up the curve, that's what gets you to that capacity factor number, which is between 30 and uh, and 40% of the nameplate um, installation capacity of the wind farm, that is what it is capable of outputting. And so it's, it's sort of a weird way of thinking about it. There are some days and some periods of, of the day, usually in the nighttime, when 150 megawatt nameplate wind farm is generating 150 megawatts but it's when wind speeds are you know 35 miles an hour and usually it's in the middle of the night um most of the time when wind speeds are lower you know below 10 10 miles an hour they're not generating at all and wind power is uh it's a an inductive form of power which if you look at the way that a wind turbine works, it actually needs a little bit of power to kickstart the generation and sure. then it uses the momentum to kind of keep going. Sure.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and I think you guys are also currently located at an active wind farm in addition to the decommissioned one, correct?
1: That's correct. Yeah. So there's, the wind farm that we took over was the first phase of um, a wind farm that was built by BP. The second phase, n- neither phase was owned by BP um, after the first 10 years, but the first phase was sold to a private equity company that we did our deal with. The second phase, which is 130 megawatts, was uh, taken over by a different company. And so mm-hmm. they're still actively generating and we share a transmission line with them so uh, there's a private transmission line that connects to the grid one part of the line connects to our substation where the bitcoin mine is another part of the line connects to their substation where the wind farm is and then the two lines kind of meet in the middle and connect to the grid together but they're separately metered totally unaffiliated projects
0: and now a quick word from our sponsor this show is powered by Giga Energy. Giga Energy is a vertically integrated Bitcoin mining company that manufactures all of the electrical infrastructure needed to start mining Bitcoin. Whether that's medium voltage switchgear, PDUs, or power cables for your miners, the team at Giga Energy has you covered. Reach out to their sales team today for all of your electrical infrastructure needs at sales at gigaenergy.com. Use the word hash rate for the subject of the email and you'll get 5% off your order. All right. Now back to the show. Oh, okay. Um I I guess Jamie I'd, I'd love for you to maybe dive into like how you guys view both projects and maybe like what and we've already kind of talked about some of the benefit, you know, but maybe maybe just go a little deeper on like the benefit for Bitcoin mining at the decommissioned site and then the benefit of Bitcoin mining at your other site. That's not decommissioned. Maybe just kind of talk about those. Cause I think, I think there's, uh, well, it's probably vastly different approaches
1: and where the benefits of Bitcoin is coming in. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny coming out of the summer of 2023, which is, um, you know, it highlights a growing problem in ERCOT. What, not it's not necessarily a problem there were no blackouts this summer or anything like that but the penetration of renewable energy into ERCOT uh, is now making extreme power price volatility occur Um, and if you compare the consumption profile of a Bitcoin miner in say West Texas with a Bitcoin miner who is located next to a hydro plant or uh located behind the meter of a, a, a nuclear reactor it's totally different and yeah um, the those those bitcoin mining operations are pretty steady just kind of run them keep them keep the uptime uh going as much as possible via you know maintaining your fleet and uh and taking good care of your cooling and and miner maintenance and all that whereas a west texas based miner is definitely leaving some money on the table if they're not actively curtailing their bitcoin mining load at least some percentage of the year uh our our uptime through the first half of the year was about 90 percent and most hosting contracts start at 95% of time requirement. And, uh, you know, that there's negotiation if you deviate away from that number. So the, the mining business model in West Texas is very different from the way that mining has conventionally been done. And the reason why it works is because you have a large penetration of intermittent renewables mm-hmm. and, um, you have negative pricing 15% of the year. And, you know, the, the other side of the spectrum of negative pricing is you have pricing that's $5,000 a megawatt hour, which is $5 right. a kilowatt hour. You know, you have this massive uh, volatility band in which prices can float, and they do float. They, you know, pricing intervals in ERCOT are every five minutes. So, you know, we'll see price spikes occur yep. very suddenly, and, um, and we've got some great... Power optimization software that can bring down the entire mine very quickly, uh, and that's you know sort of our business model is to just only mine when it's profitable. The flip side of um, economic curtailment is if you're being settled in the real time market, when you curtail, you you just don't mine for that interval, and you avoid high prices. If you are long um, a power hedge and you've you've pre-purchased lots of power or you know a, a power contract around the clock from another mm-hmm. counterparty in the electricity market when you curtail your mine in response to high prices you actually collect the difference between the the price of your power purchase agreement and wherever the real time market price settles for that interval so riot just released their august performance and they made 31 million dollars in power optimization staggering amount of money from power optimization yeah yeah you know they have uh 10 10 and change exahash which is about 400 megawatts of power and so when you have a month like august mm-hmm. where the the average price of electricity around the clock in ERCOT during august was $0.20 cents a kilowatt hour, $200 a megawatt hour. Whoa. And, you know, you compare that with the the, the average for the year, which was $0.04 cents a kilowatt hour. So there was – and there, there were a lot of intervals where prices were below $0.04, cents, you know, in, in the overnight and um, during the, the early morning, you know, say from 9 o'clock to noon when the solar was uh, generating and – temperature wasn't that high prices were still three cents a kilowatt hour four cents a kilowatt hour uh but it was really when the solar ramped off which is seven eight o'clock and the wind generation hadn't picked up yet that you saw an average price over a thousand dollars a megawatt hour during the month of august and so if you had a, a power hedge locked in and you were able to curtail your, your Bitcoin mining load very rapidly in response to those prices, you collected the difference. So, you know, you made over $900 a megawatt hour on average for those hours when the the solar ramped off and the wind hadn't kicked up yet.
0: Yeah. Um, Actually, do you mind if I ask, this is kind of a naive question or just, you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about like that actual implementation. So is there a way that they like, the markets can monitor that you're actually dropping the load to be able to sell it back into the market. I, I mean, I would imagine there are checks and balances to make sure that, you know, Riot isn't running 100 megawatts, but trying to sell 100 megawatts onto the, the market. Right.
1: Yeah. So the the way it works basically is the typical a typical power hedge is what's known as a take or pay hedge which means uh you have a counterparty in your your power contract and it's a physical it's actually a physical contract so that counterparty will go into the ERCOT system and schedule a physical trade with you where the electricity that ends up being consumed at your substation at your meter so in riot's case we'll just talk about the the rockdale facility the Mm -hmm. former alcoa site just to be kind of a simple explanation i know they have two sites but um they have a meter at that substation which is feeding information to ERCOT around the clock and uh you know it's got a direct line of communication into ERCOT, um which is called scada uh scada is the you know the way that wholesale electricity market gets transmitted um Mm wholesale electricity market data gets transmitted between ERCOT and all the people who have a substation in ERCOT. And so the the take or pay contract basically looks at the the meter at the Riot site and then looks at the power contract that was entered into between Riot and whoever the other side of that trade was. I think it's TXU. Uh, and then it, it nets them out. So if Riot has a very low reading on its substation meter you know you never get your substation to zero um right Right. because there's always some energy going through the substation itself and then you know in in our site we have pumps and fans and things that we just lights yeah you just never turn them off and so let's say in riots full mining curtailment state if they have 400 megawatts of of total load they're probably dropping down to like two or three megawatts when they're fully curtailed, maybe, maybe a bit more. Um, but so during that instance, the counterparty on the power contract would read the meter and see four megawatts of load versus whatever amount was hedged, 400 megawatts uh, is their total load. So there would be 396 megawatts that they would then say, okay, this is part of the take or pay. So you didn't take the power, so you pay the difference between what the sticker price was on the power hedge and where the real-time market settled. So let's oh, say wow. that okay. like in, uh, in the winter storm last Christmas, some of Riot's immersion infrastructure, I, th- I believe, was damaged. Uh, and so if they had had that power hedged, but that mining equipment was actually offline, then they would be still paying for... The power during those intervals, no, wherever it settled. So if if uh, you know they weren't taking that power and it was settling lower than where their hedge price was, they still have to pay that counterparty. And of course, sure. if prices are settling much higher during those intervals, then riot is being paid by the power market counterparty. So the thirty-one million dollars that they made was largely coming from their power market counterparty because riot had curtailed their mining operations during those periods and their substation meter would show you know very very little load during those times and then the real-time market for power was settling very high
0: yeah i so thank you jamie i really appreciate that there you know that that whole world i'm up in minnesota um we we don't really have a whole lot of exposure to that that type of you know power market um so i appreciate that because i I find that that's really fascinating i think i saw some some news headlines regarding the riot curtailment that were i don't know if it was misleading but i think it said the state of texas paid riot 31.7 million dollars it's like well i don't think the state of texas paid them well i paid them like seven million Yeah. yeah like for, for ancillary services. Seven of it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Which is A little misleading the, on the.
1: Yeah. It's the same thing. I mean. All. All market participants. In the ERCOT wholesale market. Pay for ancillary services. So we. We pay. Into ancillary services every month. Um, and. Ancillary services are. Blake King from Galaxy. He describes it. Um. You know, very eloquently saying it's a short term capacity market where ERCOT will look at the next day's weather forecast and and load forecast, and they will pay a certain amount of money to ensure that the power stays on the next day. So it's, if you look at a capacity market in, say, a fully regulated grid like the New York ISO uh, or the California ISO. They have a capacity market every time, which is just a fully regulated monopoly where the utility is the the counterparty in all electricity market participants. They buy all the power and they sell all the power to everybody else. So that in those grids, you have on average much, much higher prices and much less power volatility. The grid buys all of the volatility and then they subsidize that by Charging higher baseline prices to all consumers, in Texas they only do that when the forecast is really, really high, and they let the free market price volatility by having very, very wide bands of pricing. So in, you know, the the five thousand dollar per megawatt hour prints that you see in a month like August,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, that goes into every single underwriting model for anyone who's trying to build a generation. Facility in ERCOT, and they're like, "Oh, holy shit! We can make five thousand dollars a megawatt hour during that month. (laughs) That's great." So that that is the free market volatility effect uh, being a big component of the the financial modeling for building a generator versus the highly regulated monopolistic one, where in those states you have higher baseline power prices for all consumers, but you have much less volatility. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, so it's just a little bit of a pivot, but, you know, kind of staying on the, like the risk or the volatility part of things. And, um, I'd had a conversation with Dan Roberts at, at Iris, and he had made a comment about like different risk profiles. And one of the ones we talked about was being, you know, behind the meter at a wind farm. Um, I, I'd love for you to maybe just kind of double click on that or go, you know, share your thoughts on that. I mean, you guys are at a wind farm and you guys are behind the meter and would love to hear how you guys kind of think through like the risk profile on that. Um, especially since you guys kind of also have a, a non, you know, wind farm facility as well. So maybe if you could go, go there for me.
1: Right. So just to clarify, Our configuration is a little unusual, which is we're technically not behind the meter at a wind farm. We share a transmission line with an active wind farm, but both the wind farm and the mining load are separately metered. And so there is no instance where we can buy energy directly from the wind farm with the current metering configuration. And not pay transmission charges and not have that be metered by the mm. you know by ERCOT itself. So there are a number of behind the meter configurations in Texas. Um, there's a a company called Satoshi Energy. They specialize in behind the meter wind uh, wind and Bitcoin mining co-locations. and oh, okay. uh, the the reason why those arrangements are attractive is part, it's this similar motivation as why the private equity company that we ended up buying our decommissioned wind farm uh, for the transmission assets. Uh, it's the same motivation why they came to us to try and get us to go behind the meter and co-locate there. Bitcoin miners need interconnections, and yeah. building a ground up substation is very expensive and it takes a lot of time. Uh, You know, a ground-up substation is between 10 and $20 million, takes one to two years, sometimes longer. Most Bitcoin miners are not going to have that capital ready to deploy and that kind of time to wait. You know, Bitcoin mining is a very, very quick game. Uh, So what those configurations look like, it's a really interesting electricity market dynamic. The wind farm will say, hey, you Bitcoin miner. I'm going to let you build your data center behind the meter at my wind farm and you don't have to go and build a substation. We'll save you all that cost and we can get you interconnected in a year. Mm. Sounds great, right? Okay. Bitcoin miner will say, all right, cool. So what's the catch? And the wind farm will say, well, the catch is that normally if you're going to go and interconnect in, in West zone, you're going to, and you have your own meter and your own substation, like Corman has its own meter and its own substation. We're actually being paid to consume power about 15% of the year. And the time when we are being paid to consume power is when the wind speeds are the highest across the west load zone. And there's too much wind power. The export constraint on the CREZ lines has been reached and that power can no longer flow to East Texas. So what happens is the price starts dropping below zero to incentivize the generators to shut off or incentivize um, anybody who can spin up load to, to put more load on the grid because you're actually being paid to take that power off the grid. Um, if you are co-located with a wind farm and you're a Bitcoin miner, what those contracts will look like is the wind farm will have the ability to put that electricity to you. So like a put option. Sure. And it will be at a, at a floor price. So say $10 a megawatt hour. The wind farm will say, look, anytime we want, we will be able to sell you our power and the price will always be $10 a megawatt hour, never lower. So the wind farm basically gets to avoid all of the $0 and negatively priced intervals that they would normally, where they would normally be paying money to generate. By having the Bitcoin mining load, they can just dump all that power into the Bitcoin mining load and they avoid all of those negatively priced intervals. So basically Bitcoin miner gets substation interconnection and some land and the wind farm is buying a put option yeah. to to sell power to to the Bitcoin mine whenever they want. It's still very low cost power but you know the difference between between 10 dollars megawatt hour and negative 20 dollars megawatt hour if it's 15% of the year it's a, it's a material amount of money. Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, I think that's a uh... I really appreciate that because that's a fantastic walk through how that whole relationship could work behind the meter. I, I know that that's not your guys's you know situation and, and strategy, but I really appreciate that because I think it highlights like that's a very mutually beneficial relationship. Yes, I, I I do hear and understand that you know while you you could capture a lot more benefit by you know being on the, like the, the greater grid system and capturing those negatively priced that 15%. Um, it's still a great example and highlight of the, just the benefit that Bitcoin mine mining has for a grid system. Um, Jamie, I want to just keep a tab on the time. I, I know that we, we could keep going. We're probably going to have to just set up a whole nother episode <laughs> in the future. Um, I'd love to hear from you, what What does the future look like for you and Cormant and what are you guys working on that uh, we could expect to see in the near future from you guys?
1: Um, yeah. So Cormant is, uh, we have an active capital raise in the market that we are actually allowed to talk about publicly. It's a It's a Bitcoin denominated debt, venture debt note that we uh we issue into the market we have issued uh, i think we just announced that we had issued up to 650 in the the first wave so we closed 650 btc in debt uh, and we actually just closed another 150 uh, over the last two weeks or so so we're at 800 total btc uh, debt raised and the, the style of the debt is uh it's a venture debt product so it's got a 3 year term it's got a 10% uh, interest only coupon all of, all of the interest and principal is bitcoin denominated so if you if you have bitcoin and you lend it to Cormint, you do not incur a tax liability and when you're repaid your bitcoin at the maturity of the loan you don't incur uh, a tax liability on that you do incur a tax liability on your your interest payments of course but it's uh, you know it's a tax neutral way to monetize some of the bitcoin that you're sitting on and um it also carries with it pretty pretty solid warrant coverage in the business so um all of the note holders receive warrants to buy common stock in cormant and uh, most of them Mm -hmm. have exercised those warrants and um, they're also totally secured by the assets of the corporation so um You know, one of the big challenges in getting people to lend their Bitcoin is uh, (laughs) nobody wants to lend their Bitcoin. Actually, one of the (laughs) prospective investors we talked to, he said, you know, this Bitcoin is the only asset in my entire portfolio that has no counterparty risk. I have it in a hardware wallet. It's sitting in my safe and I have no counterparty risk with this. So the idea that I'm going to lend this to somebody, you know, it defeats the its purpose in my portfolio. And I said, you know what? That's a great answer. I, I can't argue with that. But, you know, <laughs> for, for a lot of people, they lend a small portion of their Bitcoin or they don't even own any Bitcoin and they, they you know, they want to um, buy some Bitcoin to participate in this product. Uh, they are secured by a first lien on uh, all the assets of the corporation. So that's our our substation, our transmission line, All of our mining machines, all of our electricity transformers, dry coolers, uh, intellectual property, everything that is property of the corporation is uh, subject to a lien um, that the note holders have on the business. So um, yeah, it's uh, 800 Bitcoin total has been raised and that is what Cormant is focused on doing is we are trying to build a, a Bitcoin denominated capital markets business that is backed by a a very competitive Bitcoin mining business. In the first half of this year, Corman had the lowest cost per BTC amongst all the reporting public companies mm-hmm. in um, in North America. So meaning our electricity cost to produce one Bitcoin was the lowest. Uh, it will not be the lowest in the third quarter because um, we did not have a a big power hedge so we didn't benefit from any of the power volatility that occurred um in in august you know august was a record-breaking um, yeah. volatile power month so that was extremely painful for the company but uh <laughs> you know we we were number one through the first half and i think yeah. we'll be we'll be up there you know in, in, at least in the top 25 percent in terms of efficiency for the full year so um that is the way that we believe bitcoin denominated financial services and bitcoin denominated yields can be safely generated for bitcoiners and that's kind of the niche that we're carving out for ourselves.
0: Oh that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean for for me personally, I I really love that prospect just it's the physical infrastructure of it all that I'm really drawn to when it comes to bitcoin mining. It's you know, very utilitarian, very infrastructure driven. Um so I that's very exciting, Jamie. And I, I want to make sure that you know we, we leave a handoff for the audience. How can they get in touch with you and 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 maybe just Cormant at large, and we can link out to, to
1: everything in the show notes as well? Uh, yeah. So check us out at our website, Cormant.com, uh, or LinkedIn, Cormant uh, Inc. That's also our Twitter handle, at Cormant Inc. Um, my Twitter handle is at James McAvity. And... Yeah, we're. Uh, I think we've we've posted quite a few updates on our progress uh, on the website. That's where we tend to update our investor base and and the broader market on what we're up to. So, um, you know, if you follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or just check the website, you, you know, you'll be able to stay up to date on everything that we're doing on there. That's fantastic,
0: Jamie. This has been a phenomenal conversation. I think uh, again, I I really think we'll we'll have to schedule round two because. There's, there's quite a bit that, that we didn't get into that I was hoping we would, and um, I really appreciate your time. You take care.
1: Thanks, Ben. Talk to you soon.